Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. This week, Charles Chang, PhD Assistant Professor of Environment and Urban Studies at Duke Kunshan, explores the relationship between Chinese internet users, known as netizens, and their government. We discuss how skepticism towards government information compares in China and the US, how Chinese netizens self-censor or use coded language to get around restrictions, and how movements for internet transparency and privacy are evolving in China today. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We'd love to delve into a bit of your research. And uh, a lot of that research focuses on the platform Weibo. Can you tell us a little bit more about Weibo and who its main users are? Yeah, great. Um, so Weibo is this kind of like social media platform in China that is equivalent to Twitter. As you all know, um, social media platform in the West are largely banned by the Great Firewall. That is to say, um, Twitter, Facebook are not accessible. So as, as, as well as um, Instagram, for example, YouTube, um, even TikTok are not accessible in China. Because of that, there are this rise of domestic social media platforms that are sort of at, at first kind of like a copycat of American um, social media platforms. But nowadays, they also have their own innovations. In a way, they, they are rivaling the social media probably in the West or probably in certain ways they are better than the, the US um, social media platforms. Weibo is one of the pioneers of these social media platforms in China. It was launched in 2009. Um, and quickly gained popularities among Chinese netizens. Um, because Chinese netizens quickly realized that they have somehow greater um, freedom of expression on Weibo. You know, uh, they could talk some topics that are previously not available uh, on, for example, mainstream media like newspapers or, you know, internet websites. And, particularly in early years when Chinese netizens um, criticized the government on Weibo, somehow their criticism has perhaps pushed the Chinese government to reform some of its policies. For example, after the Yongwen um, bullet train accident, a lot of Chinese netizens criticized the government and that somehow shifted this government to take a quick response towards policy reforms. So that gave people a lot of hope to say that this social media platform, for example, Weibo, might, have, might, might be able to change Chinese political landscape. However, after the, the ascendance of Xi to the top leadership, um, things quickly changed. Xi tightened the, the control of Weibo, and nowadays to speak anything about politics on Weibo become increasingly difficult. You know, um, opinion leaders who are critical of the state have largely been suppressed. Um, most recently, a couple months, uh, like a couple weeks ago, perhaps one of the the the, the figure, Ren Zhich, called Ren Zhichang, who's a real estate tycoon who had uh, like dozens of millions of followers on Weibo, and criticized the Chinese one-party rule publicly. He just got imprisoned for 18 years. So this kind of change happened. Um, under this administration of Xi, and of course, that changed the landscape of Weibo in terms of how the political discourse play out. And in your 
paper on self-censorship on Weibo, you talk about spatial temporal dimensions of online expression. Can you break down that term for us and explain why it's significant? Yeah, sure. So uh, conventionally, we, we understand that citizens in, in authoritarian countries like China self-censor to some degree, right? Because um, as we all know that citizens in authoritarian countries um, have some pressure from the, the state punishment. For example, if they truly express what they prefer, they might get retaliated by the state government. Like if I go on the street and, and tell everybody that I do not like this one party rule, I think that, the, for example, the Tiananmen massacre is, should, should be paid attention. We should all talk about that. Well, that's not publicly allowed. That is why um, citizens falsify their preference by saying things that, that do not mean what they, they really like, right? Um, this, is, this is certainly true. But there is another thing, which is what I call situational self-censorship. That is to say that self-censorship also varies across spatial, temporal, political context. Specifically, I argue that the Chinese citizens um, would also self-censor from anxieties that they may be linked wrongly with people in the crowd that, that are targeted as troublemakers by the authorities. So what does this mean? This means that, for example, right, would an environmental activist join LGBT group to criticize a policy that, that discriminates gay rights in China? Well, we might think they, they will because they both are, are critical of the Chinese government, right? But the answer might be no, because the Chinese citizens are so sensitive to the political risks, right? And sometimes they know that if they get somehow impl implicated into a group that are specifically targeted by the Chinese government, then they have to shoulder extra risk. And that extra risk would really sort of push the their boundaries of expression to the self-censorship. So what are these political risks? What are citizens afraid of? I just mentioned earlier, right? If you, you, if you publicly criticize the Chinese government on social media, nowadays you get punished, sometimes severely. I mean, this is, this is not just to say that the public opinion leaders who have millions of followers will get punished. Sometimes even ordinary citizens who publicly publicly criticize the Chinese government get severely punished. For example, you know, ordinary citizens who wear shirts that compare Xi Jinping with Hitler get jailed um, for indefinite time. I mean, we have little information about that. For example, you know, Cai Jing, who's an investigative journalist, right, who talk about this under the dome um, documentary that criticized the government handling of the environment, she disappeared. I mean, we don't even know where she is at this point. So citizens learned over the course of years that at certain times, right, if they criticize the government, they will get punished. But more specifically, they know that, you know, if they get linked with certain groups, they get punished more, right? Think about in the past, we talk about, for example, anti-corruption campaign, right? The Chinese citizens criticize the government for handling corruption um, insufficiently, for example, would get punished. And if they, if citizens want to criticize the government, 
at the moment when the government are talking about and success of anti-corruption campaign, then they will face additional risk of being targeted as this troublemaker, right? That kind of risk is an additional risk to their personal risk of criticizing the government, right? Because if you criticize the government as an individual, you get punished as saying things that are not proper. However, if you are saying as a part of a kind of movement that, that want to you know, somehow criticize the government broadly, right? Like, for example, if you are trying to become a kind of movement as an anti-corruption sort of like just similar movement as a kind of like June the 4th movement in 1989, then the government will punish these people harshly, you know, much more than a kind of like individual criticism. And that kind of risk is well understood by Chinese netizens. And it seems like we're in one of those critical periods now during COVID where citizens' attitudes towards self-censorship might be changing. Have you observed any changes on social media or Weibo during the COVID-19 outbreak? So, so actually, uh, the COVID-19 is a, is a great example, right? Because when we think of COVID-19, we're thinking about, okay, Chinese uh, citizens might want to criticize the government openly because it really relates to their well-being, right? At early stage, when there is COVID-19, the Chinese government did downplay the risk of, of this pandemic, right? And a lot of netizens have really never learned about this risk of COVID-19 um, before the government locked down the entire city of Wuhan and, and subsequently the entire country pretty much, right? But as, as you can see on the Chinese internet, the Chinese citizens are very afraid of speaking out against the government, right? And in early days of this pandemic, there's not much of critical talk. Only after this event of Li Wenliang, there's a widespread of kind of criticism or sympathy towards Li Wenliang rather than criticism towards the government. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that event? Yeah, so, so, so speaking of the Li Wenliang incident, it's quite interesting, right? So as, as you might know that I have another paper that, that studies the trust of government information. So that's another phenomenon that I think is fascinating because if you look at Chinese citizens, they are generally supportive of the Chinese government, um, just like all the other citizens in other authoritarian countries, right? However, the trust of government information is another manner because the Chinese citizens know that from time to time, based on their own experience, that the government information can be problematic. The Li Wenliang case is an excellent example. Dr. Li Wenliang, as we all know, is a kind of like a doctor in Wuhan who learned about this risk of COVID. Um, in late December 2019 or early 2020, right? And he warned his colleagues in Wuhan about this risk. He did not really publicly criticize the government. He only tried to spread the word among his colleagues. And even that is not allowed. So he was punished because of his speech. And later on, when this incident was exposed to the Chinese social media and the subsequently become well-known among Chinese netizen, netizens. The Chinese netizens are quite sympathetic to Dr. Li Wenliang because they also share this distrust 
of government information, right? There is a kind of criticism or kind of like misbelief in government information in that case. And they feel like Li Wenliang spoke on their behalf. And I think that is why it's quite, even though that I don't particularly study this incident, I would say I would be surprised if, if the Chinese citizens would believe government information about COVID-19 in the early period of this pandemic. I think we can start switching gears now actually to this part of your research. So we know that both the expression of Chinese netizens and their reception to government information is very important and sheds light on the authoritarian nature of the national government. Could you walk us through your general research findings on how netizens respond, what you call practical information disseminated by the Chinese government, and more specifically, when do they find government information to be credible, and when do they begin to be more suspicious of it? Yeah, so um, I have this, um, this theory about information credibility in authoritarian regimes that are inspired by other researchers who study this political expression. And my idea is, is to say that, okay, this authoritarian government normally controls all these resources of media and social media, and they could disseminate information at any time, right? But their information dissemination really sends a signal to attract attentions of citizens. This kind of signal is effective in a way to attract citizens' attention, but it's also costly because it will undermine the credibility of the information. When the authoritarian government sent too many signals to their citizens, this kind of signal would actually backfire and cost the credibility of the information. So one example that I used to study this is the terrorist attack in 2014, which has come to known as Chinese 9-11, you know, recently because of uh, the report of the New York Times, we learned that the, the Chinese government's treatment of uh, Xinjiang Uyghur group uh, really started after this 2014 terrorist attack, where reportedly 30, uh, like five Uyghur looking attackers stabbed 31 Chinese to death and wounded another 140, right? So after that incident, we learned a lot that on social media, people are overtly supportive to the government by their expression. But this is just the normal rally behind the flag effect where people just feel like they have to defend their nation, right? But when you really look at their behavior, actually you can find that there is quite a lot of distrust by their movement. When the government asks everybody to come back to the station area, which is also the downtown area where the central business are located, people are quite hesitant about that. Upon receiving this kind of information, they in fact move away from the station, which is to say that they have quite a lot of distrust about you know, government information. So this kind of phenomenon about information credibility is interesting because it says that, well, even though that the, the government, the Chinese government, increasingly gain you know, access and control of resources on media and social media in a way that they could disseminate information as much as they want, this kind of information dissemination is not costless, right? Sometimes this kind of information dissemination actually backfires, right? It works against the government's effort to persuade their citizens to do certain behaviors. 
In recent years, we've noticed that there's also increasing distrust of government information in the U.S. as well. Do you happen to see any parallels between the Chinese and American situations? Yeah, so the answer should, is yes and no. Um, yes, social media in both countries has changed how the way the information is disseminated, right? Uh, right now, a lot of people are using smartphones and social media and increasingly they gain information from smartphone and, and social media. One consequence of that is that information become more personalized and we become sort of segregated by nature with this rise of social media and smartphone, right? Because you could, you could live in a kind of information bubble where you like the account, whatever you like, and you, you, you receive the information, whatever you prefer, right? That kind of information bubble reinforces our bias and preferences of the information um, sources, right? However, there is a difference in terms of this kind of information sources between US and China, right? People in the US have choices of information sources. For example, liberal leaning uh, citizens could read uh, liberal leaning media like New York Times, Washington Post, whereas conservative leaning citizens would read, for example, Fox News, right? But people in China do not have this choice in terms of information sources. At critical moments, for example, the big announcement about anti-corruption campaign, there is no third voice, right? All these media and social media accounts are pointing to the same kind of information that are similar to the government account. So that is a crucial difference. Right, and on that note, what role would you say commercial media companies play in China? Are they entirely responsive to the state's agenda or not? Um, that's an interesting question. I think in a way, commercial media actually push China to a more um, open direction in a way that over years, as you can see, um, netizens do gain a greater uh, degree of freedom. Um, even though that their, the, their political expression is somehow is still limited, nonetheless, they could express um, other things that are more related to their you know, social phenomena. For example, they're, they're in the past, there's no such a thing as a kind of like a feminist group, right? Um, Chinese, uh, whatever, social uh, landscape. There might be a feminist group in Chinese society, but however, their voices um, cannot be heard as they do not have any kind of access to, to media resources. But nowadays, you do have groups, you know, that advocate for women's rights. You have groups that advocate for environment, for religion's freedom even, right? Um, I, I, I also track, for example, you know, the underground churches and religions groups in China on social media. And I find that they are also very vocal about their religious group, religious beliefs, as long as they do not cross the boundary in terms of discussing the politics, right? So in, in that way, I do see that the commercial media somehow transformed the landscape of political expression or expression in general, in terms of how the Chinese uh, would express themselves about the identity, about the social issues, about some policy issues, right? But we also know that even commercial media has gained strength and sometimes they want to push back against the Chinese government's control of the media. Um, they have their limits, 
For example, the recent case about TikTok is a great example, right? As you all know, TikTok is not even accessible in China because the company is fully aware of the political risk in China and they know that if they want to operate the same version of TikTok, which is called Douyin in China, that will be censored and that will not be competitive outside of China. So they intentionally create these kind of two venues of the same social media platform. Um, however, um, you know, even that uh, become an issue in both countries, I would say, you know, like in China, it's like the, the Chinese version of TikTok also faces a lot of uh, censorship, of course, and restrictions. In that way, I think this is, your question is excellent. We, we, we have to wait and see how this uh, uh, commercialization of media and social media and information technologies uh, would change Chinese landscape of expression and the politics in the future. I just want to make one more connection to COVID-19 because in your paper about state information, you reference both 2003 SARS and 2020 COVID-19 crises. For instance, you mentioned that in both cases, the CCP dismissed major leadership to convince the public of their credibility. Could you just briefly speak more about the rationale behind this and the consequences of this action? The CCP learned a lot um, from the 2003 SARS event. That event is really a watershed moment for the CCP to change their management of information regarding two crises. So briefly about this 2003 SARS event, uh, rightly reporting 2002, there is this kind of highly uh, lethal uh, infectious disease, which is later called SARS, right? That is widely spread in China and many people died because of it. However, the Chinese government suppressed that information for several months. So over the course of the entire 2002 into the early months of 2003, the Chinese citizens know nothing from the government about this, 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 this event. However, many of them heard about this event from their, from their friends and families because at that time, it's precisely the time where the communication technologies become widespread and the, the Chinese recently gained access to, to mobile phones so they can text each other, right? So by the time when the Chinese government acknowledged the existence of SARS in, Mar in, in April, right? By that time, there are many thousands of people died of SARS. And, and by that time, many Chinese have, aware, have become aware of this disease and they, they, they basically ran away from big cities to escape this SARS. And later, later on, the Chinese government dismissed the high leadership, which is very costly for their, you know, politics, right? Because they dismiss the, the minister of public health and the mayor of Beijing to convince the public that they no longer want to cover up this event and they want to take the information about SARS seriously. And that perhaps gradually gained the trust of the, the Chinese public. So that is very similar to this management of COVID-19 case, where when the, gov the Chinese government sort of changed the leadership of Hubei, and whether they use them as a scapegoat, or, that is, or it is true that the Hubei leadership, who's, who's managing this Wuhan uh, situation about COVID, we don't know yet, right? We really don't know what's the inside work of the Chinese Communist Party. However, from the past experience, we learned that when the government 
want to send a signal to their citizens uh, to convince them that their information is credible. One way to do so is to change their leadership, which is very costly. I just talked about the, the government information dissemination in regard to uh, SARS in 2002 and 2003, which what they did is to cover up the entire information. Um, and that did not work that well. So after that, the government changed their information dissemination to somewhat fact-based fact information dissemination. So, so what that means is that the Chinese state now uh, sort of disseminate information that are somewhat true, you know, somewhat fact-based, but still it is favorable to the government, right? So over the course of two, uh, the, the COVID-19, we can see that, for example, on Chinese media, the, the state has been celebrating the victory over the COVID-19, right? Which is largely true because somehow Chinese government basically eliminated all the active COVID-19 cases by this point. And, uh, and, uh, and the people do have a degree of freedom in, in, in terms of their movement, right? However, the Chinese government doesn't want to talk about its early mishandling of the COVID-19. For example, when did the government first learn about the COVID-19? Who gave the order to suppress the information? And who want to punish the whistleblowers, such as Dr. Li Wenliang, right? So in this way, the fact-based information dissemination become kind of like major way of, informa of information dissemination um, by Chinese state. And we have another question that is regarding the reception of the government on the government side. Um, since in your paper, you have also mentioned that the government is now soliciting public opinion on social media about policy issues as well. What do you think are the motivations for such actions and what are the results, how effective they are, especially given the many complications we have discussed so far? So the Chinese government learned that they could also use social media for their benefit. Yeah, it's a, some a, like some years ago they have they have launched a mission to sort of watch the public opinions on social media they call this uh public opinion guidance right they want to sort of lead um the social media uh, opinions in, in some way and the one way of, of doing this is to gain uh, information from social media as you know uh, in china we don't have election meaning that the Chinese government has no way to gather genuine information, like in the social, the, the preference from their average citizens, right? So one way they came up is to sort of gather opinions from social media. Of course, this kind of matter could be effective in certain issues, for example, because um, the netizens are aware of the misbehaviors of local officials, and sometimes they are aware of the misfunctioning of local policies. They, are, they, they can discuss, for example, the, the problems of local policies, which the party could then use to, to sort of change their uh, local policies. However, I would be very skeptical about the, the function of this kind of uh, public opinion gathering on social media in regard to major political reforms by the Chinese government. For example, if I think that um, election should be a reasonable way for the party to gain information from citizens, can I recommend, can I suggest the party to change their political system so that we could have somewhat some kind of election at a higher level? 
I, I very much doubt that the party would, would take my opinion seriously. We saw in your paper that, um, and also elsewhere, that Weibo is a very entertainment-focused um, and therefore depoliticized social media tool. As you mentioned earlier, it has been used on social advocacy, but less on political ones. Um, but it has been suggested that the organizing forces of social groups on Weibo or other Chinese social media might be converted to a more political turn. Um, like, to what extent do you think that's a promising expectation? So when you say that the social groups some we will get converted to a political term. Oh, what, what do you mean? Like, uh, as you mentioned, some uh, feminist environmental group, or just very benign organizations on, or entertainment-focused groups on uh, Weibo. That kind of organizing forces and organizing structures uh, is it possible that tradition can be adopted to a more political turn? Yeah, I I think so. I think so because I think essentially, I mean, uh. Weibo, just like other social media in the U.S., are sort of entertainment-based. Sometimes we think that, okay, Weibo is less political than Twitter, but that is not necessarily true, because when we look at the ordinary citizen's opinion, um, Weibo, 1% of the, uh, about like less than 1% of the Weibo posts are political, right? But there are some papers that study Twitter also find that on Twitter, I mean, for example, during the time of the 2012 uh, polit uh, political election, uh, uh, presidential election, there's also only less than 1% of tweets that are political. So on average, most people, I think, on social media want to talk about for example, movie stars, for example, their personal relationships, for example, you know, like music and inter entertainment, et cetera, et cetera. However, that doesn't mean that, you know, when we receive the information on social media, we see only one person because sometimes we follow the big, bigger account, right? Like for example, on Twitter, we all follow some famous politicians like President Obama. And that gave us the impression that, you know, somehow from this kind of, selected account of our following that the content of the political information is somehow more more so on Twitter than those on Weibo. Yeah, so that I think that's a kind of like um, kind of like the per perception that we we gain on social media in general, but that is not necessarily true for broader social media uh, landscape. Yeah, and I also also think that even though mm, over the years Weibo has been um, changed and nowadays that on Weibo there are less uh, public opinion leaders who are critical about the party and you know more um, propagandist account that doesn't mean that Weibo completely lost its function for organizing certain certain forces so just like you mentioned um, you know certain social groups are actively using for example, social media to organize their forces, right? And I do see potentials in these groups in pushing, for example, policy changes. For example, there are feminist groups on Weibo that are, you know, that are promoting, at least highlighting some, you know, social events that are more relevant to them. There are environmental groups as well on Weibo. You know, um, if you do a quick search about bird watching, on Weibo and, and WeChat, you can actually find very, you know, unlike-minded people on these platforms. You know, most often these people don't 
explicitly criticize the government in terms of, for example, biodiversity policies, right? But that doesn't mean that they don't care about those kinds of policies, right? If you talk with these people, as I do recently, about, for example, China's pledge towards environmental change in the next couple of decades, they're very passionate about these kinds of policy changes. And we are very hopeful that, you know, their activities, from, for example, their social media activities could attract more, you know, young citizens to join this kind of effort. So I do have hope that um, perhaps social media has positive uh, forces in shaping, you know, the social landscape. Part of the reason I asked that question is also because in recent years, we have observed that the netizens are coming up with more and more creative and maybe more complicated strategies to try to circumscri circumscribe censorship by the Chinese government. They kind of insert symbols into words or use romanized spelling or just create images, invert the images, and the strategies just become more and more complicated because they can detect what they are trying to say. Um, what do you think of that increasing, increasingly complicated trend? Yeah, I, I think, in fact, the Chinese state created perhaps the most innovative group of netizens in expression in that way, right? Because if you go on Weibo, you can find endless of examples of how netizens bypass Chinese censorship, right? Or suppression, right? They call Xi Jinping at bangs because he visited a kind of like a bang shop and had bangs. I mean, sure, you can ban bangs. Uh, but then next time he will be called as Winnie the Pooh, right? Because we all know that he bang, bang Winnie the Pooh as well, right? So, so there's endless of terms, you know, in terms of uh, bypassing the, the, the censorship. And I find that it's quite creative and, uh, and refreshing, you know? So as you, as you just mentioned, the Chinese natives use memes, um, uh, similes, uh, or kind of like emojis to bypass the, the, the Chinese censorship and do these kind of things all the time, right? Um, the the video, sh video watching platform like Bilibili, for example, which is the Chinese equivalent of YouTube now, and Chinese people are talking about um, things on, on, the, on, on kind of like on subtitle, right? They're using very creative jargons that perhaps no censor would understand, right? So, so I do have a lot of hope about Chinese netizens. I think they are equally sophisticated as the Chinese state from my paper, right? Because they are very aware of risks, but they are also very skeptical about government information. They're very fully aware of the government, you know, for example, tracking. We, we, we had, so in 2015, I gained another survey where we asked how Chinese, uh, how many of them are aware of, for example, GPS tracking um, on social media. More than 90% of netizens say that they are aware of that. But just because, you know, in China, there's real name registration on social media, so there's no privacy anyway. So most of them really don't care because, you know, government know, know they're aware about anyway, right? So in a way, um, I, think, I think in many ways, um, Chinese netizens know how Ch Chinese government are monitoring are censoring, are controlling their behaviors, but nonetheless, they came up with innovative strategies to sort of undermine government uh, information, to sort of, you know, bypass or circumscribe the censorship in and an innovative way. Is there any 
privacy rights movement in China? Is anyone trying to fight against this tracking and censorship? Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, there, there are groups that are advocating for, for example, protecting um, privacy, for example, you know, uh, advocating for greater transparency of data in general, right? But these kinds of groups um, face the same issue as the other NGOs in China. That is to say, they have limited space. They could either work with the government, meaning that they have to give government a lot of you know, leg rooms in terms of policy changes, or they function as a completely NGO, but that means they just have very limited space, you know, because the Chinese government is very capable of, of tracking down dissidents. So, 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 so that is to say there's just um, very limited space for protecting, you know, the privacy in China. If you, if you ever lived in China, you'd understand, for example, WeChat is everywhere, right? You can, even WeChat is a so-called commercial social media, you cannot survive in China without WeChat. Why? Because nowadays, after COVID, the government asks you to show the so-called health code, right? Which is on these kind of social media, whatever smartphone apps, right? So you have to do that. And that kind of code use geolocation information all the time, right? They track where you've been, what kind of risk have you been exposed to? So in a way, Privacy in China is very tricky. It's really great to see you painting such a like hopeful picture of social media, but at the same time, really knowing about the political reality in China. Like we can feel the tension, even just in your answers. We want to know what's your own experience doing research in China. Do you fear the censorship? Um, and like, what's your observations? And what are the limitations of um, working in China? Well, um, I'm aware of censorship, and because of my research. I'd say I'm better prepared to deal with the information control in China than average ordinary citizens. The decision that I made to return to China to do my research is because actually I want to learn firsthand how the government deal with information and how the citizens respond to the government control. Because as you learned that my research is about the Chinese netizens, how the, how the use internet and how they respond to the government control. Yeah, I do not really self-censor that much as you can see during our interview. Um, I think there is a difference between, you know, for example, activism, which I do not do, versus conducting um, evidence-based on research that systematically look at the evidence about how the government use internet and how the netizens use, use the internet. Yeah, I do research. And uh, I'm willing to take whatever risk that comes with my research. Yeah. So the good thing about it is about my work, my experience in working in China is that I do see a lot of hope. My students, for example, also live in China. And when I talk with my students, they are all they're all aware of Chinese, you know, government control. You know, they understand that they're you know, it's sort of a control that they have to somehow bypass, uh, you know, the Great Firewall to, to access certain information. But the hope is that Chinese young generation, I think, is very technologically savvy. They know how to use 
all these kinds of social media, the apps, they know the difference, they know the differences between certain digital information compared to other information. So, so in a way, I have hope about young generation in terms of these digital technologies. I think eventually they will change China. Thank you. It's great that we're ending on such a positive note. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all for your wonderful questions. The very fact that you are interested in, in Chinese, China, Chinese netizens in general, is a hope. You've been listening to Silver Lining with Yan Hua Chen, Ji Yun Moon, and Jasleen Chagger. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges by cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Charles Chang, and thanks to you for tuning in. Goodbye.